0: Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. And we're taking a little bit of a break. We've been doing a series on successful activists And it's been quite a ride for the last few months um, with some amazing folk on this show. Some of the issues that they've dealt with, we're gonna deal with on this show, but we're back with some old friends on Left Left or Leftist, um, our kind of corollary to mainstream media, which is, hey, um, maybe you should, you know, take another slant at the news. And that's the slant that we're gonna take here at CIET 89.5 FM. By the way, thank you very much. Um, last week was fundraising week. Thank you for those who are generous. For those who haven't thought about it yet, know that you're supporting the only listener-supported radio. Uh, in the GTA, from Buffalo to Barrie, Kitchener to Coburg. Um, no advertisers are, are running the uh, content here at all. Um, and we've got this new fabulous time slot just north of, in more ways than one, of Democracy Now with Amy Goodman. So if you've been listening to that, then listen to this too. And if you haven't given yet, do give. Any, any little bit helps to keep the station on the air into its 35th year. Whoa, who knew? Um, And today I have uh, two of our regulars that have been on uh, Left Left or Leftist before. We've got Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back Magazine. Um, And we've got um, Ben Nolan, who's uh, from the University of Massachusetts, uh, doctoral student and a Du Bois fellow. And as I said, good fellow to be a fellow of. Um, So welcome to the Radical Reverend. Let's jump right in with the headline news from north of the border, Canada. Uh, And the RCMP invasion, because that's what it is, of the Wet'suwet'en territory in BC. Um, Alex, I'm going to start with you. And one of the things that just uh, jumps out at me, until very recently, and very little news is is really given over to this, there was very little mainstream coverage of what was happening in BC. Um, And yet we've seen demonstrations from the UK to BC and right across Canada. Why? What's happening, Alex?
1: Well, the... Wet'suwet'en uh, traditional leadership had uh, issued an eviction notice to uh, the, the pipeline builders, and actually they kept that from the workers that uh, they were going to be putting up a blockade, and the workers got trapped, and, uh, and now they're sending in the RCMP to violently remove the Wet'suwet'en. And this, it's amazing. It's like two months ago, we were orange shirts and and talking about uh, all these found dead indigenous kids at uh, misnamed residential schools. But now it's gone to flak jackets and violence yet again, yet again against indigenous people. It's a scandal. It is the DNA which Canadian capitalism is built upon, and and, and is absolutely vital that everybody support the Wet'suwet'en. Uh, that like there was mass protests, mass sympathy blockades across the country in February of uh, 2020, and and then there needs to be more of the same, and the labour movement needs to get involved too.
0: I, I saw the steelworkers out, or some steelworkers out at the demonstration, but that was it. Um, what do you think, I'm going to go to Ben next, but what do you think, um, wh- what's the hesitancy there uh, with our unions in terms of backing this? I mean, there's I got nothing when I posted about this on, on Twitter, and I have to say, like, you know, it was also Trans Day of Remembrance, which I'll, I'll remember in a moment. But, um, you know, next to the turfs, uh, <laughs> I haven't had such vitriol and hatred for a while. I had to block about 100 people um, right. who just came out against um, the wet suet. And Alex, do you want to speak to that? And then I'll go to Ben. Yeah.
1: Well, although I think one thing that is different is in the first time in Canadian history, the majority of Canadian working class population support the indigenous people. And specifically because a triggering factor has been the residential schools and and the the found dead kids there. So, uh, uh, but yes, you have seen this conspiracy of silence in the media, very explicitly trying not to talk about this because they know this is a powder keg and they don't want to get this into consciousness. But because of this conspiracy of silence, there needs to be more work done in letting people know what is actually happening. In fact, contributing to the conspiracy of silence, the RCMP have been arresting journalists and stopping the footage of their violence against against the blockade. So it's vital for us to get the word out.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and Ben, I'm going to go to you as, a, as now a uh, you know American, a transplanted Canadian, but you're an American now for all intents and purposes. Um, uh, what are you hearing down there? And I do, I do want to like, inject into this, uh, that the United Nations even said that RCMP should not be on native land, and yet there they mm. are. Ben, what are you hearing about this, if anything, in the States?
2: I mean, most of the news that I get about the Wet'suwet'en uh, comes via Twitter and friends posting to social media. Uh, one thing I wanted to ask you guys about was I saw that the trains in Toronto had been stopped by a protest. We uh, posted about an hour ago. I'm curious if you've heard anything about that. Uh, uh, are-
1: have you, Alex? I haven't heard. Yes, yes. I, yeah. I saw that. A little, that's at at um, so Dufferin and uh, yeah, Dufferin just north of Bloor. Uh, I, I saw some social media posts and had a few comrades there, uh, but I don't know what's happening right now. But that's something that's ongoing. Yeah. So, I mean, in,
0: so, yeah, I mean, you've had your own uprisings in the States, uh, Indigenous issues uh, over the years, but has, has this filtered through there?
2: Well, you know, it, it, I think that the uh, when it comes to Indigenous issues, the border has maybe less salience than it does regarding other issues. So, for example, one of the journalists that was arrested, Amber Bracken, had won awards for her photography, both of Standing Rock and at the original, or not the original, but the previous what's what Major Uprising that happened, you know, bookending the other side of the pandemic in 20, was it 20, end of 2019 or beginning of 2020?
0: Yeah, around there for sure. Yeah.
2: Um, so, so yeah, so some of that stuff is filtering down. There's a, there's uh there's a, what I, what I, what I see in academic spaces, especially when they interact with, uh, with Canadians and go to Canadian con- conferences is, is a, a sort of, Reckoning with the fact that Aboriginal people or Indigenous people are kind of more real in Canada than they are, especially in the East Coast of the U.S. I think the conversation changes the further West you go. Um, But, uh, you know, I I mean, I do see gestures of solidarity popping up all over um, my Facebook feed from my Canadian comrades. uh, And so that's been hardening.
0: Yeah. I, I have to say that Standing Rock, I mean talking about democracy now was where that show really took off was they did coverage where nobody, you know, kind of went where you know boldly where nobody else would go um, and started covering it and started being t- reckoned with as a news source. Um, and, and it's really incredibly shocking how quiet it is and to Alex's point, yes. I mean every school has orange ribbons out, everybody's wearing orange on, you know, Reconciliation Day now a national holiday and then this happens you you know weeks later and uh and it's an invasion on native land and there's nothing and and just to listeners i mean the backdrop of this of course is environmental and we've just yes. seen cop 26 so the background of this is you know uh, again the the gas link on their territory against uh, old growth uh forests uh, forestry um and um and, you know chopping down these trees that should never be chopped down i mean this is this is environmental and land defenders yeah ben
2: I mean, there's also another very immediate environmental backdrop to this, which is what's happened in the lower mainland, Um, the flooding that's like broken Vancouver off from any road or rail connections to the rest of the country. I mean, it's remarkable that the federal government is funding its resources, arresting land defenders and journalists when so much help needs uh, to be given to address that crisis that's ongoing.
1: Yeah, Alex. Actually, Actually, the scandalous thing, it's not so much the federal government. This is the BC NDP government of John Horgan. The coastal gas link, the pipeline, is from BC to BC. It's no federal jurisdiction at all. There's no cross-provincial boundaries. This, in the middle of the flooding, which came after the heat wave and the wildfires all created by climate change and human created pollution now and the failure of cop 26 the failure of capitalist governments to do anything about climate change in the middle of this while there's a flood while the bc ndp government is doing almost nothing to help people but what are they doing they're sending in the cops against the wet sweat and who are trying to save the planet, not just sovereignty on their own land, but also for the good of us all, for, which is destroying British Columbia as we speak. The, the irony upon the irony upon the irony is, is immense. And, and and of course the federal government is complicit, but, but another group is co- complicit is the federal NDP. The federal NDP put, forward, put out a scandalous statement saying we don't want any violent intervention by the RCMP. So non-violent intervention by the RCMP is fine. Utterly scandalous and and actually if if this was the federal federal jurisdiction they would be screaming blue murder against Trudeau but because it's the BC NDP silence like the grave. This is scandalous and it's vital that we get the word out. And if the general public know, the general public are incredibly sympathetic to these issues today, we've got to let people know because this could spark off. um, It it was February 2020. It could spark that off all over again, uh, but uh, but on a higher level because uh, the sympathy is so much higher
0: yes um and uh, you know two big demonstrations here but i mean as far away as the uk need we say more people are in the streets about this um thanks ben um just sent me a, a link to the the yeah, blocking of the trains which we saw before with um uh we saw uh, it's it's been a tactic that's been used before uh it and and again uh <laughs> Uh, the NDP, absolutely, what the H, right? I mean, really. Um, uh, and, you know, I've been tweeting about this, and so have many others, but the silence is appalling from our so called left party here, um, only because it's, you know, themselves in leadership. I mean, Horgan, not only on this file, but let's call him out on every other file, too. I mean, on the COVID file, he's been AWOL, um, sick days, didn't do any better than than Doug Ford on sick days for workers during COVID. Um, His response has been not much better. and sometimes worse than Doug Ford, arch conservative in Ontario. Um, So so this is, I mean, this is destroying, if there was a brand, it's destroying the brand. Um, And the other thing is, and we can talk about the NDP probably in depth a little later, but um, it'll be really interesting in a minority government what they actually do to hold Trudeau to account, because so far, pretty silent there too. Um, ben, I wanna to go to the south of the border for a bit and um, talk about the other big news item that's kind of jumped out at us. And that is the verdict for our young uh, mass murderer, Kyle, R- like talk about that. I mean, you know, I talked about being in the streets um, and of course we've seen people in the streets since then as well. What's
2: going uh, on I mean, there? Since I'm not sure how much coverage this is getting in Canada, I'll just give the basics, which is the uh, Kyle Rittenhouse was a sort of a young, a uh, conservative who took it upon himself in the midst of the uprising surrounding the uh, murder of George Floyd uh, in reaction to uh, what he saw as, as the sort of scandalous looting of businesses, uh, to take his AR-15, I believe, to Kenosha um, and uh, act in concert with the police to uh, suppress essentially the the protests that were happening in, the, in that city, um, in in the midst of that, he wound up shooting and I think killing two uh, protesters and injuring one. Um, he has uh, his trial has just been completed. Uh, the The result, I think, if you've been paying attention to it, should come as absolutely no surprise. The judge at one point had uh, forbidden the people killed by Kyle Rittenhouse from being referred to as victims in the courtroom, but uh did approve them being called looters and rioters. Uh I think at one point in a comical moment, uh you know, the, the judge's cell phone rang and it was a sort of patriotic uh country song. Um ironically the judge, I if if I'm getting this right, which I believe I am, was a Democratic appointee. Um mm-hmm. which blows up, I think, some of the narratives that have been circulating. Um, The big fear and takeaway from this is that this is effectively a green light uh, for vigilantes to uh, shoot and kill protesters and claim self-defense. Uh, In the same way that that the police every time they kill someone almost they claim that they felt their life was in danger and suffer no consequences as a result. Um, I think that we can recognize that this is very alarming without affirming again the carceral logic that sort of tells us that we should be cheering for him to be like executed or thrown in jail without a key or anything like that. Um, This is a very alarming result.
0: Absolutely. Um, And this is somebody uh, linked to Proud Boys and uh, the ultra-right. So um, uh, again, um, Alex, you want to weigh in on this?
1: Well, I I heard uh, the the right-wing saying that this was the only possible outcome. And if that is true, that makes the entire system guilty. If Rittenhouse can kill people with impunity, then it is the system that gives him that impunity, that is guilty. And you know what? Millions of people are coming to that conclusion. Millions upon millions are coming to that conclusion. Uh, uh, I I think in a way, the American system, capitalism, will end up regretting things like this because it leads people to revolutionary conclusions because you cannot get justice within the system. Like here, there's an active shooter and people are trying to defend themselves. The group is trying to defend itself from active shooter and the force of the state is on his side. Yeah, and
0: and I have to say that from just even an ethical, compassionate point of view, I mean, the smearing of the victims is outrageous on social media if you've been following it. Um, I mean, I one like your your it's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, I, it's just unbelievable um, and just completely is unleashed. So um, there there is that. So let's talk about. Um, I, I'm going to stick with you, Ben, for a minute, and let's talk about our so-called alternatives. <laughs> Okay, so we got Biden in, uh, in the White House. We've got um, not a majority in the Senate, but in the, in the House um, of Democrats. You've got, um, it, it's Democrats. Um, so, so what's happening there um, now that presumably, you know, ding dong, the, you know, the witch is dead, Trump's gone. What's happening?
2: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure that's a big question. Um, so I, let me let me see, where should I start? I think the place that I'd like to start is with his uh, surprising and in a way laudable decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. Uh, one thing that's remarkable about that is uh, just how popular it was with the public and how absolutely unpopular it was with anyone with a seat on any sort of major corporate news station. Um, and it's interesting to uh, think about whether that, uh, all out blitz uh, against him for that decision has been a contributing factor to his his pretty plummeting his plummeting popularity or how much of that is otherwise a function of a continued uh continued very high oil prices frustration with lack of action in uh in other spheres more recent news uh is that he recently passed uh, a 1.2 or his The Democrats in Congress passed passed a $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill um, which was split from the so-called Build Back Better bill, which contains most of the provisions relating to climate change um, and other key sort of progressive issues. Uh, There had been a progressive strategy to try to make those two bills inseparable with the idea that that was the only way in which the progressive elements of of his claimed agenda would get through. Um, the Build Back Better plan just passed the house. I think that it's pretty unlikely that it will emerge from the Senate if it emerges at all in anything like the form uh in which it entered the Senate. Um what else is there to say about Biden? Um What about the
0: gerrymandering and the kind of restructuring that's happening in the states um that will kind of guarantee Republican rule for another decade um, and the filibustering that's happening um you know in, in, in talk about that a little bit, because I think that's something that has filtered through up here in Canada and uh, and is really kind of shocking people.
2: Right. So the filibuster is a rule in the Senate that basically allows the minority party to block any legislation from being passed outside of extraordinary circumstances by the majority party, unless a supermajority can be assembled. Uh, it's been obvious, essentially, since the Obama administration that So long as the filibuster is in place, very little legislation, uh, even nominally progressive legislation, even anti-progressive legislation will be passed. Under Obama, uh, there was an attempt to cut social security, which Mitch McConnell blocked just as a matter of principle because he was blocking everything that uh, Obama was trying to push through. Uh, So, I will say that among political scientists and I just uh, the reason that I I sound maybe congested is that I got sick from attending my first in-person conference as the pandemic started. Uh, So I was hanging out with political scientists and I have to say I was pretty uh, interested to hear how many are pretty convinced that we're on the pathway towards a one-party state in the U.S. uh, 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 towards minority rule again because of these things like the filibuster like gerrymandering like the sort of undermining of, uh, of confidence in electoral institutions, um, like the sort of flimsiness of the Democrats' response to it, this, you know, we'll take the high road strategy uh, in which the sort of immediate problems that are evident that need to be solved are sort of ignored in favor of symbolic action. Um, so yeah, so the, the picture for electoral politics in the U.S. is pretty bleak. And I, you know, I think most people are pretty confident that, you know, the Senate will certainly fall in the midterms and, you know, unless the cheeseburgers get the better of him, that we may be looking at another Trump presidency in 2024.
0: What about all the hope, you know, the Bernie's, the squad, AOC, what about all that?
2: Where's so that where, energy? Where I find hope right now is with, uh, you know, what had been called last month Strike Tober. Um, there's there's been a huge upsurge of labor militancy. It's a bit easy to over it's easy to overstate the scope of it. It's a fairly it's fairly limited by the scale of like just the size of the American workforce. But we've seen militant strikes at John Deere. We've seen, uh which resulted in a big win that's a, a uaw union yeah now hold
0: that thought ben because we want to get to that i'm going to let alex because i for sure we're going to deal with that because that's some really exciting news but alex weigh in on on biden and what's up with the, the democrats and why we still seem to be seeing gerrymandering um you know uh, uh really a takeover of the republicans from the electoral process
1: well, actually, it reminds me of, of a famous quote by, um, I think it was Vaclav Harville who said that the uh, United States has one party, the property party, with two right wings, right? And the reality is, the witch is not dead. Trump is uh, alive and kicking, and, and the Trump movement is alive and kicking. And, and the fact is that Biden cannot really provide any fundamental change so it really you know the democrats merely provide the preconditions for the republicans and the right-wing republicans the trump trumpites and so it's quite likely that they will come back and 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 that's why bernie and the squad and the rest of them there's a lot of the enthusiasm has waned because they're tied to the democrats because they're tied to the democrats there needs to be an independent voice there needs to be an independent Labour Party in in the states and i, I and you know you, it's always this lesser evilism and you've got to vote democrat to stop the republicans but y- the democrats actually create the conditions for the republicans we, we need a decisive alternative isn't
0: there a third party i mean what about the you know I, it, there have been attempts right um mm-hmm. yeah ben there's been attempts
1: they were, yeah. but yeah unfortunately they haven't taken off like they really do need support from significant figures like Bernie Sanders, AOC, like if, if they all broke from the Democrats, I think that that would create a good momentum. Uh, major unions, like there was a Labour Party in the nineties, but it, it it didn't gel, and uh, and it made a few mistakes. But I think the conditions now are so much more acute that actually, if if some major organisations and and individuals got behind it, it could take off very quickly. Uh, all all of the conditions are there, but it, it needs. It can't just be uh, people like me and my comrades in the States calling for it. It has to be people with you know, proper
2: resources, right?
0: It certainly takes money in the States. What do you think about a third party, Ben?
2: I think I agree with Alex that the path towards a third party runs through the labor movement itself. It's interesting at uh, the Du Bois Center, we were recently reading uh, James Boggs' 1964 book *An American Revolution, pages from a Negro worker's notebook. Uh, which tells kind of the story of the rise of labor militancy through the CIO in the 30s and 40s, to its kind of decline and capture by the Democratic Party uh, in the 50s and 60s. And I think that we're kind of, we've we've seen that just get worse and worse and worse, uh, to the point that again, I, I mentioned that the uh, scope of the labor militancy that we're seeing shouldn't be overstated, but by comparison to the absolute zero of what it had been since especially uh, Reagan's breaking of the PACCO union, uh, it, it is really something, and I think there's a ton of energy among the American workforce in general uh, for for some sort of alternative Mm -hmm. and there's and there's a real transformation in the relationship between uh the rank and file and the higher ups of the union internationals that we're seeing rippling out through uh the teamsters who just elected a reform slate through the uaw which is currently conducting a referendum on shifting away from a delegate system for electing leadership towards a direct democratic system for electing membership, which, you know, as a UAW member myself, as a graduate worker at the University of Massachusetts, I'm strongly in support of the one one member, one vote uh, ballot initiative. And I, I hope that if any comrades are listening, you remember to put your ballot in the mail.
0: Okay, so let's, we, we're, we're getting, we can't stay away from it because we want some good news here, so I'll inject it. Um, yeah, I mean, I I think it wasn't the last show, the show before the last one on the Radical Reverend. If you're there on SoundCloud and iTunes, you're listening to the Radical Reverend show, by the way, if you just tuned in. And we've got our left, lefter leftist panel. We've got Ben Nolan from the States, uh, Du Bois Fellow, University of Massachusetts, and we've got at Amherst, and we've got um, Alex Grant, editor of Fightback magazine here, based here in Toronto. And of course, we're talking of the news. So I had this uh, two weeks ago, I had this real kick ass woman from Richard. Virginia, and I just loved her drawl. Anyway, um, she was one of the Nabisco workers who recently won, and it was her first union experience. She's the first woman elected to her position. Um, I mean, like the fervor was incredible that she spoke with the excitement, the uh, the, the joy with which they won. Um, now Kellogg's is out on strike. I haven't heard the latest from there, but um, uh, you know, you got John Deere. You even had a, a you know Iatsi a little bit more complicated there, but still, um, we're seeing and and Chicago Teachers Union, the teachers as well. I mean. Uh, in the midst of a, you know, a pandemic, you've got this incredible energy. Um, so, so yeah, Ben, talk about that. Like, um, this seemed to come out of nowhere, but obviously didn't. Um, what were the factors that went into that?
2: I mean, there are a lot of different conditions, I think, that have contributed to empowering different sectors of workers in the economy um, this time around. So we're seeing now, as opposed to, for example, the teacher strike wave that we saw a few years ago, we see now factory workers on strike. We see uh, people in, again, the healthcare industry on strike. We see education workers on strike. We see service workers on strike. Um, So what's remarkable, I think, is the sort of diversity of the current militancy. It's not kind of focused in any one sector. Um, There are a number of factors, I think, that are going into it. One is that as a result of any number of factors relating to the pandemic, um, workers have found themselves in a position where if you walk off the job, there are literally we're hiring signs on every business that you walk past. Um, And so the quit rate is at an unprecedented high right now. Um, There is also the sort of aftermath of this long period within the pandemic where workers are being celebrated as essential workers, um, which gave some perspective again, when they came to contract negotiations on exactly what it was that they were being offered in light of their essentialness. And so you see demands being made not only for less rollbacks of benefits and wages and et cetera, which has been kind of the terms through which union politics has uh, progressed since, again, Reagan in the 80s, but demands for, like, real change. So, you know, at John Deere they're, they're really pushing back against these tiered uh, offers being put on the table by management, where essentially existing workers sell out new hires and future workers for the benefit of like short-term gains games for themselves. There's a real pushback against that sort of thing. There's a real focus again on working hours, on on, on uh, overtime and on overwork, which is a big shift. I think I, I, from narratives that we saw featured, especially in the nineties and, and the aughts where you would see, for example, union workers sitting in a bar waiting for a shift and there just wasn't enough work to go around and they were taking whatever scraps they could. That's not the case anymore. There's there's this uh, kind of return to the old traditional battlegrounds of I think the labor struggle. Um, and I do think that frankly, both involvement in the sort of insurgent left campaigns within the democratic party and the disillusionment with the way that that was totally quashed has been a pretty educative experience for people who want to bring that energy to spaces that have really immediate impacts on their lives. so I, I think I've been talking too much. I'll pass it no, no,
0: no, I, I, no, I definitely want Alex to weigh in on this, but um, also another factor I would say is the huge pandemic profiteering of the companies they work for. These companies have made billions of dollars, have given their executives huge bonuses and asked their workers to risk their lives to come to work and then work overtime as well.
1: Alex, weigh in on this. Yeah, they've got so much money that they're wasting it on flying to space and then they've got nothing for their workers. Uh, you cannot rule out the working class. You absolutely cannot rule out the working class. We, all these academics told us that the working class doesn't exist. And guess what? In the pandemic, if the working class didn't exist, who's making your stuff? Who's delivering it? Right? It, it's, uh, uh, and now the working class is making themselves felt. And if the political struggle is blocked, then people turned to the economic struggle and and, and the union struggle. Actually it's very reminiscent of the second half of the 1930s that you had a strike wo- wave, which was sparked off by revolutionaries. and Minneapolis uh, was a, was a, a Teamsters was a famous strike led by revolutionaries and uh, and then that led to the birth of the CIO and some of the highest strike, I think probably the highest strike, rates in, in U.S. history, and, and Canada had its uh, reflection of that, uh, too. So and, and eventually, this will also have a political reflection as working-class people learn on a picket line, learn who's on their side, who's not on their side. The Democrats are not on their side. That uh, And then they will start demanding political representation that is on the side of workers uh, on picket lines. Uh, inflation plays a major role here as well. Because, yeah, say something about that yeah so inflation in canada in the us is like five or six percent a year there's been all of this uh fictitious capital quantitative easing basically printing money uh pushed into the economy uh, and and that benefits the banks and the big corporations it's bailouts to them but that has the printing money has the effect of reducing the value of money and makes everything more inflate expensive I, I don't know about you but when i used to go to no frills i used it used to cost me a hundred dollars now it cost me 140 150 and i'm buying the same stuff sometimes i, I even buying less and working class people say like, well look if, if the cost of living is going up if it used to cost me 50 bucks to fill a tank of gas and now it's 70 bucks i need to keep up with that in terms of my wages And that has an effect upon the consciousness of working class people has an effect upon uh, unions because uh, in the past, you know, you'd get union leaders would sign contracts with zero or 1% wage increases. Mm. And if inflation was only one or 2%, people wouldn't like it, but they'd live with it. But inflation is five or 6%. People will not live with 1% wage increases. And that's why there have been strikes. And there will be more strikes, and I think it will come to Canada. Canada is a little bit delayed, but I yeah, think it will come here too. Let
0: me let me jump in there and 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 challenge. Well, i challenge you. I'm sure we're on the same page. But 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 what about Canada? I mean, we're looking south of the border. We're seeing this militancy. We're seeing them win with militancy, and up here, the two big news that jump out at me are number one, the TTC, Toronto Transit, for those who are listening, um, uh, went to court. Um, to fight mandated vaccinations, so to make their workplaces more dangerous to their workers and lost. Uh, the second thing that jumps out at me is seeing some of our major union leaders standing with Doug Ford, oh. celebrating uh, $15 uh, an hour minimum wage in the future after the next election, when they know that he got rid of it when he came into office, this is shocking behavior, and and also not a lot else. Like we're we're seeing education workers, we're seeing everybody risking their lives during the pandemic. Um, we're, we had calls and had thoughts of a general strike. I mean, when 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 else but now, um, and um, nothing. And all, we get millions of grievances. That's all we get. Talk to talk to us, Alex, about that.
1: Well, I, I don't think, first of all, you shouldn't blame working-class people. Mm-hmm. I think working-class people are prepared to fight. That There was one poll that said they, uh, 35% reject capitalism. That's over 11 million adults. And and actually, there's all these strike votes, 97% strike votes on a regular basis. And then the, the union bureaucracy signed very bad contracts. But yeah, you had a total betrayal. Jerry Diaz from Unifor and Smokey Thomas from uh, the OPSU Ontario Public Service Union, uh, they were standing behind the anti-worker Premier Doug Ford, uh, declaring fifteen dollars an hour minimum wage as if that was an advance when he cancelled the fifteen dollars. In fact, with inflation, Ford's fifteen dollars is less than the fourteen dollars when he came into power, and and to bolster that, it's, it's just. Utterly scandalous. Uh, actually, one example of a sort of union uh, capitulation was in Alberta. Superstore workers, frontline heroes, essential workers, 97% strike vote, and and you could and you could see it on social media. These workers were ready to go out to uh, catch up with inflation, get that hero pay, etc., and. And the letter went out from the union saying, "Don't strike, you'll lose. Everybody will hate you." Um, and and it was just like the it was like they were doing the job of the boss rather than helping people have confidence.
0: Yeah. So go, I'm just going to go back to Ben for a bit. What, what this doing the job of a boss? I mean, you've got. You know, union leaders who are making pretty good coin, especially in Canada, um, and um, they're and they're spending more of their time in boardrooms negotiating, presumably, than they are with the rank and file. Um, is this part of the problem? Um, how do we change it? I mean, you talked about one one person, one vote um, with UAW. I mean, it's uniform up here, but I mean, I, I mean, we had Jerry Diaz standing next to Doug Ford up here. Um, you know, what's the solution here in terms
2: of unions? I mean, that's, that's the tricky thing, right, is that Canada, as far as union density goes, as far as the sort of strength of the unions and their sort of ability to uh, have standing within the halls of power, it's much greater in Canada, but it seems to have come at the cost that they're pretty just integrated into the status quo of how things are. And I know that, again, to echo Alex's point, that what the, the union leadership says is not necessarily reflective of the rank and file. You know, I have friends that are nurses in uh, Toronto that are just pulling their hair out, and not only at Doug Ford, but at exactly the union leaders that they see as selling out their interests as well. Like they're looking at just career changes in this moment when they're absolutely essential. Um, but yeah, far- this,
0: this was a time for a general strike here. Yeah. Like, when was the time for a general strike, if not during a pandemic, when they really were essential workers and we could not live without them. Um, and yet uh, there was this uh, fear seems to be guiding our, our leadership here, at not
2: uh, not hope, you know? <laughs> and and what worker in Canada can afford rent now. I mean, I'm looking at moving back to Canada and it's terrifying, just the, the sheer cost of housing is absurd. Speaking of inflation and a major driver of inflation, But one last thing i wanted to mention with regards to this this recent rise of militancy in the states and what's so interesting about it manifesting in industrial contexts which we haven't seen in a long time uh, is again the breakdown of supply chains internationally the sort of calling into question of this whole just-in-time model and the way that that's really shaken i think the threat of outsourcing that's been a real like a real cudgel that's been used against the unions especially again since the 1980s Um, So you have that on the one hand and you also have, again, you know, and alarmingly, uh, this rise of a kind of ethno-nationalism that is trying to appeal to frustration around those, around those votes. You know, it's often I think misportrayed that like the white working class is the base for Trump. Uh, Trump's base was absolutely and is absolutely old small business owners living in the exurbs like it's the people that like own you know, car dealerships and stuff like that. But, you know, my friends that live in, in Flint, in Michigan, uh, in industrial centers that have been largely sold out, again, by uh, globalization, by outsourcing, you know, where they're uh, not just completely checking out of political participation, they're supporting Trump out of spite in a weird way. Um, yeah
0: well let's talk about that i'm going to go to alex next um uh, you're, t- you're listening, by the way, to the Radical Reverend Show, and we have our left, left, or leftist panel. Um, on this show, we've got Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back, and we've got Ben Nolan, um, a graduate student from University of Massachusetts, Du Bois Fellow in the States. Um, uh, so, you know, let's talk about this, uh, you know, the center falling out, um, uh, but also imperialism, global globalization, because for the longest time, this has been used, as Ben said, as a cudgel. Um, okay, so, you know, our workers go on strike here at General Motors, let's say, and they just pick up and move their toys to Mexico or, um, you know, uh, and, and of course, this leads into a kind of uh, and can lead into a kind of racism, anti-Chinese sentiment, for example, you see that played up here and in the States. Um, uh, you know, how, do, how does one combat that in terms of organization and, you know, this this
1: incredible move of militancy that that makes gains? So I, I wanted to mention one more thing in terms of strikes before I go on to that, sure. that I, I'm very w- aware not to be despondent. And in fact, there was a fantastic strike in New Brunswick recently, 10 QP locals, 22,000 workers uh, against the wage restraint of the provincial conservative government. and I, I, And in that the wage demands of the workers had 82 percent support in the population. And the government had 67% disapproval. And and, and the workers gained a, a lot more if, than if they had never struck, although they probably could have achieved even more. Sadly, there was a sort of a bit of a compromise at the end. Anyway, turning to imperialism, I, I think uh, the Canadian order workers actually had a good line on this when they split from the UAW, back in the 80s, I don't think they should have split, but uh, they did have a good line on this in terms of saying, look, we're not going to accept the race for the bottom. We're not going to accept taking cuts, taking rollbacks in order to do a sweetheart deal, to, to have production locally, because it doesn't work, because then every all the workers have to do that. And, and the, it, the boss is just laughing, splitting everyone. The best thing to do is actually militantly declare what is just and what you have to achieve for working class people and combine that with international solidarity so that you, you fight for more and then you encourage workers in the United States, in Mexico, in China to fight for more and, and really don't fall into this beggar thy neighbor uh, nationalism because uh, it because it's essentially self-defeating it's actually internationalism class solidarity and a good example of militancy that raises all bolts
0: uh, the problem uh, the problem though i think uh, ben i sort of heard a hint of um in terms of i mean we saw this yes uh, absolutely right i mean this idea that it's you know um, white people on the line that are supporting Trump is not true. However, there's, you know, when the, the the pushback against the Democrats, the New York elites, you know, the the kind of New York, LA elite elitism, you know, um, uh, uh, from there's, there is a kind of working class anger that talk about Alex, you know, talking about the 1930s um, can go either way, right? Can go um, the rise of fascism there or the I mean, when the center falls out, it's left or right. So um, so a part, you know, part, of, part of the fear, and this is not just like middle-class progressives fear, um, this is fear I think for militants who are very working class um, with their other you know, sisters, brothers and others who are you know, talking about uh, these issues, is this us versus them um, ins- instead of the internationalism that um, Alex, you're talking about. And I don't wanna be despondent, I just wanna say, let's look at the 1930s. Um, how do you counter that? Alex, I'll go to you first and then Ben.
1: Well, you did see it in the Canadian election. The, the People's Party of Canada and Bernier got uh, practically five percent. And, and they're really the only people who did well in the election. And, and that's because they were unapologetic. They didn't care. They mobilized people. And when society is in crisis, it's not everybody moves left or everybody moves right. It's a polarization. If you look at the uh, opinion polls, the majority of people do move left but the left is terribly organized and the right is very well organized and and unapologetic and so the answer is to be unapologetic to be socialist to call out capitalism to so look if society if there's problems in society there's huge problems you don't deny them you don't don't say liberalism is fine uh, you say there's huge problems. Whose fault is it? Well, it's the rich and the powerful, the bosses and the bankers who actually run society, not some poor ignorant escaping from a war zone that the rich, the bosses and the bankers created in the first place. Right. Our arguments are a lot more logical, uh, but you've got to make them. And somebody's got to be making them and calling out capitalism. That's the way you you face down the far right. And and if they are using violent means to terrorize workers and and, and indigenous people and immigrants and uh, LGBTQ, then we face them down on the streets in numbers for everybody, uh, especially organized labor. Ben, weigh in on this. (laughs)
2: Well, I mean, I think another important lesson of the 1930s was that uh, it was kind of the communists versus everybody, right? It wasn't just the fascists that were fighting them in the streets. They were being, uh, you know, they were being sort of uh, they're recognized as kind of the evil also by the self-declared centrists and people occupying reasonable positions within society um, that wanted to exclude. Uh, leftist ideas from even counting as legitimate to be aired in the public square, right? And so long as that's excluded from being able to be uh, presented as a viable political option, what's left that is a rejection of this inadequate status quo? So again, this is, I think, part of the disappointment with the NDP and the Green Party in the last election and why Bernier was able to really dominate and set the agenda uh, for the entire like move cycle surrounding the election was because he really was the only one trying to argue that uh, Canada needed some alternative, some change that was the sort of radical difference from what had come before the other. Major parties seemed most, mostly to be competing to, to, to be the most reasonable, to be, you know, we're better at doing what the liberals are saying that they wanna be doing already in the first place. Um,
0: yeah, uh, um, and, and I, we seem to have gone full circle. But before you know, we, we tie a bow on it. I want to I want to talk about COP twenty six. I want to talk about that existential crisis that we're now facing. Um, so I mean, in Canada, we're seeing mudslides, flooding, fires. Um, the two states. I mean, everywhere in the world is affected by this, and uh, we will all be affected by this soon. Um, and yet, it, it's kind of a lemmings off a cliff. Even though I gather that's a myth. Um, <laughs> Um, scenario. I mean, we know that uh, we have aired this many times on the show. Some hundred companies are responsible for about seventy one percent of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, we you know we, we know that this is a this is a corporate problem, um, and uh, but we don't see a political will. You know, certainly in the West, um, probably anywhere really to deal with it. Um, uh, we so I mean, you know. So let's talk about that, um, Alex. I'm going to go to you because this has been current in Canada. Um, for example, mainstream media in all the coverage of BC, you don't you don't see climate emergency, climate crisis anywhere. This is just a force of nature, mm-hmm. something that happens. Bad news, too bad. Alex, what what should be happening here?
1: Well, COP twenty I, six. If you want an example of how capitalist governments can't solve the, can't solve the climate crisis. There you have it, that they, they couldn't agree on anything, and I think what what is it? What was it? Something like 1.8 degrees by 2060 if if everybody does everything that they're supposed to do, which they won't, and they never have before, and 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 it has, and all the scientists say, well, no, it, 1.8 itself is not enough. It needs to be 1.5 degrees. And it's and and hundreds and hundreds of corporate lobbyists. This is the same corp, you know. The fact that the top hundred corporations are responsible for seventy one percent of all emissions. We need a revolution. And yo- actually, young people, you know, young people are in two camps. They're either revolutionaries or they're doomers. There's, there's zoomers or doomers, right? They've just given up. It's like, look, we're all uh, going to hell and I, and there's nothing to be done versus, and actually that's most of the conversation. I, I don't have to convince anybody that capitalism is bad. Everybody, all the young people know that. The, 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 I have to convince people that there's some hope and that there's something you can do about it and you can fight and win. And so that's the main argument going on right now is between doom and revolution. Yeah. And yeah. Good point.
0: Um I, I think of, of Greta Thunberg and the blah 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 comment is so yes. appropriate. Ben, Cop twenty six. And Biden, good. Biden's response. Let's talk about Oregon for a minute.
2: Uh, well, I, I just want to say it was fitting that the COP twenty six conference was kind of capstoned by the president of the conference, Alex Sharma, who's a, a British representative, uh apologizing. Uh, for just the complete inadequacy of anything that was arrived at uh, in the deal, and if you, I think, followed the details of what it was that they were talking about, and and the victories that they wanted to claim, for example, that they had almost reached the sort of financial commitments to mitigation that they had made ten years ago, but if you look at the details of it, most of that was accounted for. So the the they promised something like I think a hundred billion dollars. Um, they through all kinds of funny accounting, managed to get it up to 80-something billion dollars. But the bulk of that was high-interest loans that were given to mostly incredibly poor third-world countries that, you know, who knows what that's going to result in, but it's certainly not uh, actual mitigation of the consequences of the climate catastrophe. Um, Even
1: even the word mitigation, the the word mitigation is a capitulation and, and a statement of defeat. Right. And and, and, and the, I saw that they had two um, NDP MPs or M, uh, uh, MLAs from British Columbia, and all they were talking about were mitigation in terms right. of climate in the floods and the fires. And, and it's like, no, let's stop the crisis. not. Yeah. Or, or or we hands. have the you
0: know the Rachel Notleys who are friends with big oil and big gas. Yes. Um, so it's yeah, and, and and to Ben's point, I mean there are 500 apparently there are 500 lobbyists from you know big oil there that were more than any country. sense. <laughs> so, really? I mean they and and you can see their effects even on social media. Like I, it's it's unbelievable. Um, you know people are being bought uh, even even sadly in the indigenous world. So so this is what happens, right? Um, but but to to Alex's point it's doom or, or revolution there should be something that's kind of more illiterate there like <laughs> rhyming or something but uh, ben so talk about that how do we get how do we get out of this doom spiral um and and, and get people like you you know get people filling
2: their power well i mean i think that the uh, solidarity protests that we're seeing pop up around the wet sweat and to again go full circle is, is a step in the right direction i think alex is right that there's uh very few people under the age of Forty that need to be convinced that this is a very immediate crisis, or who don't see the sort of vague symbolic action being taken by leaders as as effectively climate denial, which is what it is. Um, as far as getting around this, I mean, I agree. I, I, I agree that we need to. Uh, n- abandon any idea that the solution to this crisis is gonna come from within the logic of any of the current powers that are currently at the table. I mean, you asked me about Biden's response or the response in the U.S. to the COP26 conference. And I mean, overwhelmingly it was weird finger pointing at like India for not compromising on coal production or China for not participating in exactly the correct way. Uh, The the Americans apparently wanted uh, them to participate. Uh, there is very little discussion beyond uh, the incapacity of the American uh, machinery of government to step up to the commitments that it's made. I mean there's there's a recognition of that among liberals, but again not necessarily an urgency surrounding it um, So you know again, I think that I agree that the hope has to be with uh, the young people and with the direct action that's being taken by, folks like the people that are shutting down trains in Toronto right now. And I hope that uh, they keep doing what they're doing.
0: Well, D- David Suzuki, apparently, who's who's. Uh you know, definitely um, kind of played the liberal in the liberal camp a little bit um, over the years, but today talked about bombing pipelines if nothing was done, um, for which vitriol has been extensive on on social media. Um, But I mean, bombing a pipeline versus, you know, destroying a planet, I don't know. I mean, just to put things in perspective, um, and certainly we're still subsidizing, we're still subsidizing both Mm -hmm. the north and south of the border. We're still giving you know billions of dollars to uh, the fossil fuel industry yeah ben you wanted to jump in
2: yeah i mean one thing i've been seeing on social media from like kind of the canadian uncle set is in response to the high gas prices this again this idea that like well why are we shipping all this oil from the middle east what we need to be doing is you know properly exploiting our own resources and actually it's cleaner and they do some weird math it's never sourced properly and frankly, it's complete nonsense. The equation in which, any equation in which the uh, tar sands are even partially exploited is one of an uninhabitable earth. Um, and it's interesting that the the, the real solution is again, re- like reductions of consumption, reductions of unnecessary production, reductions of subsidies to these industries. but none of that makes any sense or has any currency within uh, conversations that are entirely framed uh, by capital and by the profit motive. And so, you know, what I see is the solution that's being put on the table by the dominant discourse is literally the richest man in the world is Elon Musk, right? Who uh, symbolizes this technological innovation that's gonna save us all from this and who uh, has his company, his company is profitable essentially because he sells uh, what are those things that the Catholics used to sell in the middle ages, the Martin Luther got really- Oh, up?
0: indulgences. Yeah.
2: He sells indulgences to the other, uh, uh, to the other car companies. Yeah. Um, and that's what tips the scale. You we know, he's launching rockets into the sky. <laughs> OK, we
0: just got like we've got seconds left here. Um, I just want to, uh, I will, Alex, give your last word very, very quickly. Um, and I just want to thank, first of all, Alex Grant and Ben Nolan for being on Left, Left or Left. It's been a bit a treat as always. Um, and, uh, you know, do tune in next time to the Radical Reverend show. Alex, take us out. You got like 30 seconds.
1: <laughs> well, I hope that the, uh, the Wet Wet and movement takes off. And I, and I hope the environmental movement takes off and the the strike movement takes off. That's what we need. We need uh, that uh, Trudeau's going to uh, try and uh, uh, cut back an attack. We can't let that happen.
0: Thank you. Thanks for tuning in.